anxiety, demon possession, and righteous anger. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. He's got questions, he's got answers. Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He's got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And I'm so excited this week to tell you that the first dates for my upcoming book tour this fall have been announced. You can see them at findinggodinthewaves.com slash tour, and I'll tell you more about that after the start. But for now, we've got a show to do. Let's get it started. So September 13th is a really big deal in Science Mike land because my first ever book called Finding God in the Waves will come out. It'll be in bookstores everywhere. It'll be on Amazon. It's actually available for pre-order right now if you listen to the show with any regularity. You've already heard that a few times. But today I have something really exciting to announce on that front. I'm doing a tour to support the book. And I wanted to tell you just a little bit about it, some different events that we're having, and how you can learn more. So first of all, on September 13th, that night, Tuesday, I'm having a launch party in Tallahassee, my hometown, at Good Samaritan United Methodist Church, my home church. It's going to be a free event, completely free, no cost to attend. But you will need to register an RSVP to reserve a spot because we're expecting a pretty good crowd. Now, this uh, event is going to feature a few things. There'll be uh, the first ever public reading uh, from the book. There'll be a Q&A. Uh, some of my friends are going to be there to uh, play a little music. I'm excited about that. And uh, immediately following that, there'll be a meet and greet and uh, book signing, my first book signing I've ever done. So it's pretty historic for me. And, uh, you know, if you're in the Tallahassee area or in a drivable distance, I'd love to see you that night. And I don't remember the rest of the events. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, and also, I know a lot of people can't get to Tallahassee. And even though we're going to try to go to a lot of cities on this tour, there are parts of the country I'm not going to get close to. So that you can be a part of this launch and uh, you can hear questions and you can see this launch. We're going to stream it live on Facebook, on my Facebook page. So if you'd like to learn more about this event, uh, go to findinggodinthewaves.com slash tour. Now that's the first stop on the tour, which will then immediately move on to other cities. The next one, of course, is Denver. So there's several types of events we're doing on this tour. The first is Ask Science Mike Live. Now if you've heard this program. It's a question and answer show, which is a lot of fun. But to me, the most fun episodes of Ask Science Mike are the live ones where we record the show in front of a live studio audience where the questions come in real time and my answers are unrehearsed. Uh, I think those are the best episodes of the program. So we're just going to do a bunch of them all over the United States. Okay, So uh, most of those will be ticketed events because we're trying to cover the cost of you know me traveling from city to city and staying in hotel rooms and uh, 
you know, working with venues and all that kind of stuff. So a uh, $15 ticket to most Ask Science Mike live events, really affordable. They're a lot of fun. I mean, people have told me it's it's not only uh, an you know enlightening experience, it's also can be hilarious because of the interaction between me and you. So I'd love to see you at an Ask Science Mike live event. The second kind of event we're going to have on tour is the Liturgist Gathering. Now, you've heard some about that already on this show, but Michael and Lisa Gunger and I are getting together to put on a day-and-a-half event full of conversation, uh, insightful teaching, and uh, really, when I say teaching, sharing our our opinions and then hearing yours, (laughs) and then some really amazing music put on by Michael and Lisa. Uh, We've done these in the form of Belong before. We've gotten really good feedback. And so for Denver and Chicago, the Liturgist Gathering will serve as the tour stops. Uh, Although in Chicago, you could also see me at the Y Christian Conference if you're going to go to that. And I'd love to see you at both. If you've got tickets to both, great. We'll just spend a lot of time together in Chicago. Now, the final type of stop on the tour is some churches and other venues have brought me in just to give a, a talk on my story, 30-minute, 45-minute talk about the story the book is based on. Uh, you've heard it on episodes 6 and 7 of the Liturgist podcast, uh, and, and that's a, a live portrayal, a dramatic portrayal that's very similar to that. Now, what all these events have in common is that there will be a meet-and-greet and book signing for anyone who attends. So if you come to any of those events, I'm going to stay around as long as I need to, to meet you, talk to you, uh, sign your book, you know, take a picture, whatever you want to do. I really enjoy meeting you face-to-face. I budget a lot of time. I budget more time to meet people after the event than I do for the actual event itself, because to me, that's where the life is. Talking to you, hearing your stories, I love it. So we've got some cities announced right now, And more cities are coming soon. Like every week for the next few weeks, we're going to announce another raft of cities that are on the tour uh, just because we're finalizing dates and locations with our venues that have agreed to partner on this tour. Again, you can learn all about it at findinggodinthewaves.com slash tour. Now, finally, in addition to doing a city-to-city tour, I'm also doing a blog and podcast tour. So if you're a blogger, or you're a podcaster and you'd like to do an interview with me or talk to me about the the subject matter of finding God in the waves, which is how we make peace between God and science, how we can use them both together instead of in opposition, I'm available to do that. And if you're selected to be part of that tour, we're going to send you an advanced copy of the book and you're going to get promotion on my social media channels, uh, which frankly, there's a decent number of people that Uh, follow me on Twitter and Facebook these days. So, you know, I'd love to promote your work there. To learn more about that, just go to AskScienceMike.com and then look for the link to the blog and podcast tour uh, on the show notes in this episode, episode 75. And listen, I would love to see you on tour. And if you're a blogger or a podcaster, I'd love to talk to you one-on-one about how science and faith work together. This is a really exciting season for me, so you'll probably hear a lot about this in the coming weeks. Uh, But thanks for going on this journey with me, and hopefully I'll see you in person as we do it. Hey, Mike. So I have a question about righteous anger. You've talked a lot about 
anger and the negative effects that an overly active amygdala can have on the brain. But what happens when that anger is aimed at a justifiable cause? So I've heard a lot of Christians use the story of Jesus driving out the money changers from the temple as a justification for their anger toward uh, some perceived injustice in the world or in the church. And oftentimes that anger uh, releases itself as bitterness or, or hate or some type of you know, violent action. Uh, I've seen it manifest itself in you know, the Black Lives Matter protests right now. I've also seen it manifest itself in the email inboxes of people like me and you who have such bad theology. I'd love to hear you talk some about how that righteous anger affects our brain and how we might be able to channel it in a way that can be productive and beneficial for us as a church and a society as a whole. Uh, Thank you. I love the work you do. I'm really looking forward to hearing your answer to this. And um, thanks for all you do. It's a really good question, and it's one that convicts me, to use my old Baptist language, um, because I have a complicated relationship with anger. Uh, I'm very uncomfortable around expressions of anger based on my own uh, personal growth and development as a person and relationships I've had with folks that have kind of fiery tempers and how I relate to that. In fact, Uh, an aversion to displays of anger kind of defines who I am as a person. And um, recent years have challenged my assumptions about the appropriateness and health of expressing anger. So let's talk a little bit bit about uh, the clinical side, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, distinguishing righteous anger uh, from you know just run-of-the-mill anger and then some things we can do about anger and see where that goes. So first of all, chronic anger, being angry often, uh, has some serious health consequences. It's been linked to depression. It's been linked to an increased risk of stroke and heart attack. And specifically, people who are angry often have a 19% higher risk of developing heart disease because anger is hard on the heart, Uh, especially the kind of short-term extreme outbursts of rage you can see, like road rage or when people get so mad they scream or punch a wall or something like that, the kind of anger you see boil up from people who repress it most of the time. Those kind of outbursts can actually double your risk of heart attack or stroke in the two hours following that outburst. That's how much stress you're putting on your heart in such an outburst. You see, when you get angry, your body engages its flight or fight response. Uh, Your arteries constrict. You get a surge of adrenaline, and you get ready for a physical altercation. It's very hard on your body's support systems to go into that kind of state. And anger, like severe rage, puts you in a very, very elevated flight or fight state. Now, one thing that's different about righteous anger, or anger we feel that is completely justified even after our angry episode, is that it has this sort of satisfying quality that can actually create a compulsion very similar to addiction toward righteous indignation. I think this is an affliction that's common on Twitter. 
Uh, people get uh, riled up for ju- completely justifiable reasons and justifiable causes. Uh, and when they do so, they're, they're getting a little tickle in their ventral stratum, uh, the part of the brain associated with pleasure, in addition to the amygdala response, which is going to what? It's going to reinforce human behavior. It's going to create this dopamine serotonin cycle that humans find so satisfying and so tempting. Uh, so you can get a relationship to righteous anger that's pretty similar to a relationship to pound cake or Coke, whatever, whatever, whatever your little uh, pleasurable thing is. So whether it's righteous anger or, you know, just traditional anger, if you're having it often and you're elevating that flight or fight response, you're going to have the same health consequences. So even, you know, if Jesus was turning over uh, or driving the money changers out of the temple a few times a day, it would have affected his physical well-being in a negative way. So this is an important distinction. Even if the source of our anger is justified, allowing ourselves to be angry daily or most of the time is bad for our bodies. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit more about that because there's some important points I don't want to miss in there. So the folks over at WebMD offer four criteria for diagnosing and discharging anger. And here they are. One, I can't accomplish anything by blaming other people, even if they are responsible for the problem. I'll try another angle. So the idea there is looking and saying, if I'm blaming situations, circumstances, whatever, on someone else, it doesn't change anything, even if they're actually responsible. So let me try another angle for my own internal monologue and my communications with people. Okay, that's one idea. Second idea, will this matter five years from now? How about five hours or five minutes? The third is, if I'm still angry about this tomorrow, I'll deal with it then. But for now, I'm just going to cool off, right? So it's giving yourself permission to relax in this moment, see how you feel 24 hours later. And the fourth thing they recommend is saying acting angry is not the same is showing that I care. There's other ways to show that you care about people or issues than displays of anger. Now, here's the problem, and this is a huge problem. Sometimes our anger is not diffused by those tests. So I can think of several scenarios. You're in a relationship, and the other person has betrayed you and continues to betray you. So... You may not blame them, uh, they're responsible for the issue, but as long as you're in a relationship with someone who's betraying you or abusing you, it's difficult to find another angle. Uh, and, and the same thing, people who are part of marginalized or oppressed groups in society, what can they do to find another angle? They can search for personal peace, but every time you face societal systemic pressures against your basic life and well-being, you're going to be challenged. In the same way, will this matter five years from now? Well, if your partner is betraying you, yeah, it will. Or if you're a person of color living in America, will the things in society that anger you matter in five years? If they don't change, absolutely. The same thing, being angry about this tomorrow. Of course you'll be angry about this tomorrow. The last born acting angry is not the same as showing that I care is a good point. 
But here's the thing. Anger actually gets a bad rap in American society and evangelical culture specifically. Because anger can, and this is validated by studies, anger can actually get people's attention and change others' behaviors when calm conversations fail to do the same. So other brains register the significance of what you're saying sometimes only when you say it while angry because you send out signals that you're in a heightened emotional state and the other person's brain realizes you could be becoming a threat or if they value you, that there's something they really need to listen to. Here's the problem, though. It's a gamble because when we go into an angry state, it's a natural response for another person's brain to enter a flight or fight response themselves. And once you're in that state, learning's not possible anymore. People are either going to attack or flee in order to survive. That's, that's what we've been reduced to in that state. Our, bas- our basal ganglia are kind of running the show, right? The, the, the reptile brain takes over. All the fancy human neurons, even the fancy mammal neurons, they're kind of shoved out of the way. And the reptile, the lizard brain, takes over our behaviors. So there, there's a gamble there. There's a gamble there. But, but absolutely, sometimes anger is the only way to get attention. By the way, we have a tendency when talking about racial justice issues to minimize and erase the amount of anger Martin Luther King expressed over racial injustice. He absolutely painted pictures of peace. He gave inspiring speeches. He encouraged nonviolence. But history is clear that he also got angry and spoke from a place of anger often. And that attention galvanized the world and drove significant changes in the way black Americans were treated in society. But it also made some people angry. And in other ways, you know, other people may have come along to the cause slower than they would have otherwise. We don't have any clear understanding of what those statistics may look like. But I think we can all agree that the net contribution of Martin Luther King to racial justice in America was positive. If we can't agree, I'm not sure this is the podcast for you. Uh, Anyway, so now here's another thing about anger. Relationships that incorporate nonviolent expressions of anger generally see a benefit in intimacy and duration. Can you believe that? People in friendships and romantic relationships who are able to express anger without becoming violent or making their partner or friend feel unsafe actually see an increase in intimacy and an increase in duration. People feel like they know you better after they've seen you angry. Isn't that fascinating? Totally surprising to me as someone who's very uncomfortable with anger. Now, what do we do when we have justifiable anger? We don't repress it. Repressing anger leads to outbursts of rage, right? So you want to acknowledge your anger. If necessary, you want to direct it to people who are the source of your anger in ways that are not violent or threatening. But there's another thing that I've kind of seen in the uh, justice movement, specifically among Black Lives Matter advocates, and this is an idea of self-care. So people who spend a lot of time advocating 
for racial justice. They find themselves in high-stress encounters, in protests, in seminars, in other scenarios. And that has this physical toll we've talked about earlier in the answer. Well, they somewhat mitigate that with cycles of self-care. They have regular routines and disciplines of entering into calm states, of feeling safe and cared for, and they go on seasons or, or, or periods of time where they don't engage in the work, which is probably a healthy response. So what have we learned? Chronic anger, righteous or otherwise, carries real health benefits. But repressing anger is not an appropriate response because all we're doing is encouraging ourselves to go into a state of rage later on, which is extremely bad for our physical well-being. Better is to express anger when necessary in a non-violent, non-threatening way within our relationships, understanding that sometimes anger is the only way to get people to understand the importance of what we're talking about. And finally, it's important to have a good self-care regimen so that we're dealing with the ongoing physiological costs of our anger, be it righteous or otherwise. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hey, Science Mike, what's your take on demon possession? To give you insight, I go to a Christian liberal arts college with roots in Calvinism. Boy, that's quite a combo. (laughs) The pastor at the college gave an exorcism a few years ago before I started attending said school, and it is one of the stories that is associated with the place. I don't know the pastor well enough to ask him of his experiences, so I might have to keep asking around about what exactly happened. I grew up Pentecostal, so the idea isn't so far-fetched in my upbringing. Thanks for doing what it is you do, Jack. Well, Jack, that's certainly an interesting question. It's one I feel like I've answered before in the show, but I looked for it and couldn't find it. Uh, So if this is a repeat answer for those of you who listen to the show a lot, I apologize. And for (laughs) this is these aren't the best questions to ask Science Mike. Um, because I start with a scientific take. And, well, let's start with a, a little bit of social science. Belief in angels and demons is incredibly common in America. 77% of adults believe in ethereal beings, according to a 2006 poll. Uh, and other polls earlier and later corroborate those numbers. Um, belief in angels can go as high as you know, 80 or 82% some years. Um, And if you poll specifically religious people or Christians, those numbers go up pretty considerably, up into the 90s, uh, as high as 96% of people. Um, And in some countries across the world, more people believe in angels than believe in God. (laughs) So, um, of course, if you believe in angels, it's not a stretch to believe in demons. And in terms of uh, religious history, the association of possession by an ethereal being as being universally negative is somewhat unique to Christianity. Uh, Some other faiths and spiritual traditions believe or or, or have a belief in short-term possession by beings, but they can be positive or negative. Uh, So that's a little historical context 
for demon possession. Of course, within the Christian tradition, of course, you know, there's the belief that Jesus comes to dwell within us or, or through God's Holy Spirit uh, for Trinitarian folk, but we don't really consider that a possession, do we? Uh, now, when we look at the scientific evidence for demon possession, wow, there's a different story. Uh, scientific evidence for demon possession is incredibly scarce. In fact, I was unable to find a single credible bit of forensic evidence or scientific evidence that would support something as extraordinary a claim as demon possession. Um, Now, there are certainly a lot of testimonies and stories out there about demon possession, but there's a reason we don't use human testimony to validate fact claims alone in science, human testimony is a somewhat unreliable source of information, even when people are trying to be completely honest, okay? What I am not saying, scientifically speaking, that pastors and priests who speak of exorcism or demon possession are lying. I'm saying that, scientifically speaking, they are likely mistaken. Now, don't turn off the podcast Here is more to this answer. Now, the sources I did find that claim to have forensic evidence aren't very credible. They tend to be conspiracy sites. They tend to be exclusively religious sites. And the evidence they cite is either human testimony or, you know, very blurry photographs or very scratchy audio recordings. Uh, And most of the behaviors you see from the demon-possessed are simply too easily explained as a corroboration between the possessed and the person reporting the incident, or if the observer isn't involved, the person who is possessed as well as the person who reported the possession. One uh, feature is truly spectacular that is often ascribed to demon possession is levitation, uh, but I was not able to find a scientifically diagnosed or tested case of demon possession levitation. And I did a lot of digging through academic journals to try to find one. Uh, So I'm comfortable saying that you cannot make a credible scientific claim that demon possession is real. So what would modern science say about demon possession? It would describe them as manifestations of illness or mental illness, problems with the body systems of our brains, things with a measurable origin and some treatment methodology uh, available from modern medicine. That's the best scientific answer on demon possession I can give you. Now, what do we do with that as Christians and people of faith? Well, first of all, I think a lot of the accounts in the Bible specifically really are attempts to explain observed phenomena in a time before germ theory, in a time before psychology, in a time before neuroscience. Schizophrenia, dissociative personality disorder, multiple personality disorder, bipolar disorder, many of these things, even to the person experiencing them, seem to come from beyond their own consciousness. 
And why wouldn't you describe that as an ethereal being or a demon? Now today, many people still believe in demon possession. A significant portion of the population um, and certainly believe in spiritual warfare of some kind. You know, for a long time in my life, I didn't really hold supernatural beliefs. As an atheist, I didn't believe in the supernatural. And when I came back to Christianity as a non-theist mystic, I didn't suddenly have some appreciation for the supernatural. I thought supernatural language was a way of simply describing physical reality. That there was no distinction between natural and supernatural. And what's interesting about this question when you've asked it is... um, You're asking something I'm working through right now, and frankly, that I don't expect to resolve in my lifetime. When we speak of spirit, what exactly are we speaking of? When we talk about angels and demons, what are we talking about? Today, the science on these matters is clear and unambiguous, barring some further evidence which science always leaves room for, there's no scientific claim for demons. But some of the experiences I've had in my life, some of the mystical moments, lead me to believe that in a mystical way, we talk of something real when we talk of the spiritual realm. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? I don't know, and I can't articulate it. I would expect no one to take my word on it. I would not make that as a fact claim. I would not debate or defend it. I just have moments in my life that I have difficulty explaining that were powerful and pervasive. Uh, On the show notes this week on AskScienceMike.com, I'm going to share one such story that I almost completely dismiss out of hand. It's an article in the Washington Post from a psychiatrist who is qualified and diagnoses mental illnesses and sometimes does that for priests in the Catholic Church. And he um, screens out people with mental illness so they don't attempt to exercise a mental illness, which, by the way, we have documented cases of people undergoing physical harm or even death. When someone tried to treat a mental illness with exorcism, that is a serious, measurable issue. But this man writes compellingly of his experiences with those patients who he believes were not mentally ill, but instead possessed. I want to be extraordinarily clear. The most likely scientific explanation is that this expert is mistaken and that he was either a victim of fraud or misinterpretation of mental illness. But for those of you who are curious or want to explore or deeply believe in an unseen realm of spirits where angels and demons are involved in our material reality, this is as close to a credible case from an expert describing demon possession as I was able to find. So wrap it up. Scientifically, demon possession is not a thing. (laughs) Uh, For people of faith, sometimes the matter is not quite so simple, and the case is not quite as closed. And what do I believe? 
as you started. What's my take? I don't know. I know what my scientific take is. Uh, but what I think about the spirit world is a matter of mystery for me as much as anyone. Our next question explores mature topics. If you're listening with your kids, this is an excellent time to press pause and come back to the episode later. Hey, Science Mike. I was raised in an evangelical home uh, with all the baggage uh, related to sexuality that that comes with. Um, I'm starting to realize uh, that the way that I think about sexuality, the way that I see other people, the things that I think and go through my, the things that go through my head when I'm observing other people in day-to-day life are all kind of tied back to that way of thinking. And I was wondering if you had any advice on how to kind of rewrite my ways of thinking um, in terms of sexuality and if there's any good books or any good references that I could read that kind of help me to find a healthier way of thinking. Thank you. I too was raised in an evangelical upbringing, and that was beautiful in a lot of ways. Um, And I think some of the teachings on marriage and relationships in evangelicalism are very beneficial. They talk about fidelity. They talk about dedication. They talk about loyalty. They talk about how deeply you should value your spouse, and I think those are really constructive things that have helped me be a good husband. But other things are less good. I don't think teachings on complementarianism are positive, especially in this day and age. And I think the teachings about sex and sexuality in the church do more harm than good. And I'm not just talking about LGBT issues here. I'm talking about basic sexuality. Uh, Specifically, there's probably four teachings I'm most concerned with, four bits of subtext that damage the way people process sexual experiences later in life. The first one is that women's bodies are dangerous, that women's bodies need to be covered up, that they encourage sin. Uh, This is a, a foundation for later objectification of women, This is a foundation for sexual violence. Uh, This is something that reduces women to sexual beings, even though we have this forced chastity uh, on women based on belief number two, and that is that the sex drive is irresistible or uncontrollable once people reach a state of arousal. And in men, it's basically uncontrollable all the time, hence the need for women to cover up. This creates a lack of accountability between men and their own actions. So I think that teaching is negative and harmful. The third belief is that sex and sexuality are shameful or dirty or even taboo. I think the taboos that we place around sexuality fuel sexual violence, fuel dysfunction, fuel pornography compulsions, fuel secretive behaviors, and may even create additional risk for pedophilia in our society because we're uncomfortable talking about sexual topics. And if we do talk about them, they're so taboo, we talk about them in a a context of arousal or fascination instead of simple acceptance. And the fourth belief 
uh, related to the third is that masturbation is shameful and sinful, which creates an unhealthy relationship between a person and their own body. It's even responsible, I think, for the reason many women are unable to achieve an orgasm because they have a shame state associated with their own sexuality. These are topics that deeply concern me. They undergird so much of human sexuality. And what we understand through neuropsychology is that the language we use to describe ourselves affects our behaviors. So if we believe women's bodies are deeply sexual by nature and that men's sex drives are uncontrollable, this contributes to men saying, well, she deserved it. Look at what she was wearing. Do you see the relationship between those beliefs and the lived behavior? Or the shame, the reason so many people, men and women, but especially men today, view pornography in private without discussing it with their partner, leading to a sense of separation and a sense of betrayal. Even marital infidelity can be related to a breakdown in communication about sexuality related to shame. If you can't tell, this is a topic I feel passionately about. So if you've been raised in that environment, what on earth do you do? I think you start with a shame detox. You stop being ashamed of sexuality over time by changing your behavior. First, women's bodies are not dangerous. They are not sinful. Now, I'm a heterosexual male. I think women's bodies are beautiful. But women's breasts are primarily there as devices to feed children. They're ways to provide sustenance to, to, to babies. Uh, women's bodies are shaped as they are to facilitate childbirth, the reproduction of the species. The wide hips are there for a utilitarian function that evolution has trained us to appreciate and culture has reinforced, especially in America, to a dramatic degree. We realize that our sex drive is not shameful. It's healthy. We realize that, for example, people who have an orgasm often, especially men, have health benefits associated with that. And regular masturbation actually leads to lower rates of prostate cancer in men. So pleasure isn't sinful. It isn't wrong. It isn't shameful. And we should foster seeking out pleasure in the context of relationships and uh, infidelity and, and devotion to a person, in my opinion, is more healthy. So in terms of how you change what you're doing, I think a lot of problems uh, for men especially, this may be a problem for women as well, is we can look at the sex we're attracted to and we can objectify them. And, and immediately in a moment, we can reduce that person down to a physical object and then judge it whether it's attractive or not. If we find it's attractive, then we go into a state of desire for that object, not for that person. So maybe you could try this uh, little technique, this cognitive behavior therapy moment, is at the moment you become aware that you're reducing a human being to an object, intentionally 
associate that person with their personhood. Remind yourself with your inner monologue that you're looking at a person and not a sports car or a sandwich. I don't know why I chose sports cars and sandwiches. (laughs) I'm not really into sports cars, but I do love sandwiches. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, this is a terrible dad joke. Um, So, you know, to do that, you know, try imagining what that person's hopes and dreams may be or where they're going right now, what they're traveling. And you'll find pretty quickly that your brain moves back to viewing that person as a person and not an object of conquest. It requires a lot of internal work and reflection to foster a healthier sexuality. Now, in the context of your relationships, learn to create open lines of communication around sex and sexuality with your partner. I don't feel a lot of taboo discussing any topic with my wife. In fact, I feel so little taboo about sex and sexuality that I'm pretty comfortable talking about it on a podcast like this, knowing thousands of people will listen, because I understand that sex is not only a necessary function in human reproduction, but an essential component of bonding and relationships and personal peace and fulfillment, that for people who are sexual, sex is good. Now, of course, some people listening to this program are asexual, and this is an experience you can't relate to, uh, that you uh, you know, you know, find confusing and off-putting. So there's nothing wrong with being asexual either. Sex doesn't have to be a core part of your identity or your relationships. But for people who choose to be in relationships and choose for sex to be a part of that relationship, we understand that this physical expression is a huge part of how we relate to a person, how we express intimacy and closeness, and how we learn to help each other derive pleasure. Now, I've got two books. You asked for books. I've got two I'd love for you to check out. One is called Sex at Dawn. It's a fantastic book. Uh, one of my favorites about human sexuality and uh, you know compares us with uh, some primate species. And another book that I have not read yet, but is on my bookshelf that I'm getting ready to read, is a book called Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option, and Other Things the Bible Says About Sex. I haven't read it, but it's come highly recommended by several people that I admire and respect. So I'll have links to those in the show notes this week at AskScienceMike.com. Our last question comes in via email, and it reads, Hi, Science Mike. I'm not sure how to get started, so I'll just dive right in. I'm concerned that I may have generalized anxiety disorder. I've always been a worrier and prone to stressing out more than my friends, but it feels like I've been getting worse lately and interfering with my quality of life. I've scheduled an appointment with my primary care physician, though they can't see me for another month, so I'm left to worry about everything that could be wrong with me in the meantime. I've been trying to calm myself through research, the power of knowledge, but trying to figure out reliable sources of information on the disorder, and the various options for treatment is overwhelming me a bit. Can you give me a summary on what anxiety disorders are specifically and what causes them to happen or get worse. The internet says that they are more likely to occur in women. Why is that? I've been also looking into my options regarding therapy, 
but there are apparently a million types of therapist, and I can't figure out which one would be best for me. Can you explain the difference between different types of therapists, psychiatrists, and which one would be best for someone with anxiety? I know you're not a doctor, but you're definitely better at reading and interpreting scientific research than I am, and I was hoping you could point me in the right direction. Thank you for taking the time to read this, Kate. Well, Kate, the first thing I'd like to tell you is you are not alone, and I suspect a lot of people are interested in my answer to this question because it was by far, uh, it got the most votes this week on the Patreon poll for questions on the show, uh, by a considerable margin, actually. Uh, Anxiety is a big deal in our society today. Uh, We have some reason to believe that anxiety uh, is more common than it's been in the past and getting worse. Um, Now, I didn't see a lot of uh, great research describing why specifically women may experience anxiety disorders more often than men. And uh, to honor the seriousness of the condition, I'm not going to speculate on why that may be. I'm just going to admit my ignorance. Now, there's a distinction between anxiety and an anxiety disorder, okay? And anxiety disorders are a family of disorders and conditions where anxiety is so severe it interferes with daily living and a quality of life, okay? So, Do I just have anxiety or do I have an anxiety disorder? Are you having difficulty functioning, getting through your day, getting through your job, getting through meals? Or are you doing those things but never able to experience positive emotions or rarely able to experience positive feelings associated with your daily life? If so, you may have an anxiety disorder. Now, there are many types of anxiety disorders, But the three most common, in my understanding, are the following. First is generalized anxiety disorder, and that's a constant worry and tension that keeps you from functioning, even when there's no obvious cause for your anxiety. Another common type of anxiety disorder is social anxiety disorder, and that's an extreme self-consciousness and worry in social settings. So it can be paralyzing to be with other people when you have social anxiety disorder. You can worry about how you appear, how others will think about you, what you might say, what you might do, and it can keep you from being able to not only enjoy those relationships and enjoy those times, but even function in a conversation. And another type of really common panic disorder uh, or, or general anxiety disorder is a panic disorder. This means sudden panic attacks. Now, I've never been a person that experienced a great deal of anxiety without cause. When I've had times in my life that I had a lot of anxiety, I knew exactly why I had the anxiety. And when I dealt with that situation or circumstance, my anxiety went away. And that's a normal relationship with anxiety. Not all anxiety is bad. Anxiety can be telling you something. And if you're aware of what's causing your anxiety and you address the issue and your anxiety goes away, there's nothing to worry about. But after I had my motorcycle accident and corresponding brain injury, I started to experience unexplainable anxiety for the first time. I started to have anxiety in social settings because people's voices and the volume of background noise was overwhelming and made me feel afraid. 
I actually started to have panic attacks. I've had situations since the motorcycle accident where uh, in some settings I have a sudden and extreme panic attack. And even though I know it's related to my brain injury, that's called comfort when you've been asked to speak to a bunch of students and you had to go hide in a closet for a few minutes to calm down. So these are these are real things. Now don't worry, uh, all you listeners, you guys are, are so kind. You worry a lot when I admit that I've got health issues. Uh, I'm actually a lot better. I haven't had any of those things happen in several months. But my point is, I understand this question more than I may have in the past, having experienced a temporary manifestation of some of these symptoms. Now, the specific causes for any one person's anxiety disorder can be difficult to isolate, but we understand some general contributing factors that are usually interrelated that can contribute to someone having an anxiety disorder. One can be genetic factors. You can have genetic predispositions to various types of anxiety. Two can be you experience some kind of trauma that can come from abuse, that can come from a loss of a job or a loved one. Those can increase your propensity to have an anxiety disorder. Stress about work or money or school or relationships can contribute. Medications you're taking, illness, a temporary or chronic illness can contribute towards an anxiety disorder. If you're very nervous, often some studies link that with a highly increased risk of an anxiety disorder because it may change the way that your brain functions. Uh, Ingesting stimulants like coffee and chocolate can exacerbate anxiety disorders, and substance abuse issues can certainly drive anxiety disorders. Now, when you look at that list, if you have more than one of those things in your life and each additional thing you pile up, you increase your risk for an anxiety disorder. So let's say you have an unknown genetic factor and someone you love very much dies. And soon after that, you get a pay cut at work because the company is in hard times. And then you get a sinus infection that lasts for weeks and weeks and weeks. You start drinking more coffee because you're having trouble sleeping at night. And the occasional beer you used to have, or the beer a week, turns into three or four alcoholic drinks per day. And suddenly you've climbed a ladder that gets you very, very close to an anxiety disorder. You've got so many contributing factors that your likelihood of having an anxiety disorder has increased. Likewise, if you're currently having what you believe is a generalized anxiety disorder, are there things on that list that you can control and eliminate? Could you drink less coffee? Could you eat less chocolate or other stimulants? Could you cut down on your substance consumption, even if it's a not an out-of-control habit. Can you examine your medications, especially over-the-counter? This might be a time to cut out herbal supplements, which some of those have been shown to contribute towards anxiety disorders. And can you try to come to some emotional state of acceptance, at least on a temporary term, about situations you can't control? Can you face some grief? Can you understand that right now money is going to be tight and a budget cut may be necessary, at least in the short term? It's a, it's, a, it's a posture that we're seeking to try to give the brain an opportunity to deal with the changes. 
Now, in terms of treatment options for anxiety disorders, once you see your doctor, I hope your doctor is going to recommend a therapist. He may prescribe something over the counter. He may not. He may want you to see a mental health uh, specialist before you do. Uh, but I certainly hope that it doesn't just end with medication because there are some really excellent uh, scientifically validated therapeutic approaches to dealing with generalized anxiety disorders or anxiety disorders in general, not just generalized anxiety disorders. But these therapies vary depending on the type of anxiety disorder you have. So I can't, first, I shouldn't, I'm not a doctor, but second, even with all I've read, I can't say like which therapy is right for you because I don't know specifically what condition you're dealing with and what the contributing factors may be. But in general, here are some treatment options for people suffering from an anxiety disorder. One is something called relaxation therapy, where a therapist talks you through and teaches you strategies for creating a state of relaxation in your life. Uh, a related therapy is called biofeedback. It's a methodology for learning to be aware of your body's physical state and intentionally manipulating them. That's something I do a lot. Cognitive behavior therapy, something you hear me talk about on this show all the time because I think it's such a powerful means for helping us deal with our own thoughts and feelings, which is a way of becoming aware of your stream of consciousness and intentionally interrupting it and inserting different thoughts, especially dealing with negative thoughts. Meditation has been shown to have a therapeutic effect on anxiety, and you may want to try meditating in the month leading up to your doctor's appointment. And there's other treatments that are disorder-specific, certainly, like immersion therapy. or there's, there's several of those, probably a dozen I saw online. So now how do you find a good treatment provider? Well, on the show notes this week on AskScienceMike.com, there's a link that says Questions to Ask, Choosing a Treatment Provider. It's fantastic. I'd suggest that you go read that, absorb it. You'll see questions that you should ask, but this is an essential thing. It is normal. It is normal for the first time you talk to a therapist or psychiatrist for it to be an interview. Not every patient and psychiatrist, even if both have great intention, are right for each other. There's nothing wrong with seeing someone once or twice or three times and deciding they're not a fit and trying someone else. And even if you try three or five or eight different therapists, for your mental well-being, especially if you have a pretty serious anxiety disorder, it's okay to talk to multiple people and then work with the one who makes you feel most comfortable that they can help you get through this and they can help you restore a quality of life and get to a state where you are able to function again. And psychiatrists and therapists understand this. They understand that there just might not be a fit and that's okay, don't feel any obligation because you saw someone one time and it just didn't work to just keep trying and keep trying. Uh, I've heard a lot of people describe that pattern of behavior. The important thing is what? The important thing is that you get well. The important thing is that you get the treatment that you need to function in life. So remember, you're not alone. You are not alone a lot of people experience anxiety, even crippling anxiety today. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not bad. You're not wrong. You've just got it, something you've got to deal with right now. It may be purely in your brain. 
It may be circumstantial, but either way, it's not hopeless. And trained professionals can help you create strategies that help you deal with and mitigate this situation. And in time, it may completely go away. But if it doesn't, have hope. You can get through this. And it's okay to ask for help. And it's okay to ask your loved ones to be patient and supportive as you do. Well, that's another episode of Ask Science Mike in the books. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I want to thank my patrons on Patreon for making this show possible financially um, and for not only doing that, but also doing the hard work of picking the questions for the show. I am so thankful for all of you. If you'd like to help contribute to Ask Science Mike, if you find the show helpful, I'd really appreciate a couple bucks a week. Just go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the Support Us on Patreon icon on the right-hand side of any post or kind of in the middle of the screen on the main page. Uh, now, if money's tight, I get it. Money's tight for me a lot, too. So you can just uh, rate the show on iTunes or share an episode on social media, and that helps the show grow. Uh, if you want to ask a question on Ask Science Mike, there's a few ways to do that. You can use hashtag AskScienceMike, um, or you can go to AskScienceMike.com and fill out a, a form where you can either record a voicemail question or send in an email question. Now, we've got a special episode coming up with our friends at BioLogos, and we've gotten a ton of questions for this. But if you have questions specifically about Christianity and evolution, the scientists and researchers at BioLogos are going to come on the show and answer questions for a special episode in the near future. So I'd love for you to be a part of that. Just use the hashtag AskBioLogos instead of the hashtag AskScienceMike. I want to thank Andrew Galucky for all of his work in pre-production and what he's been doing with the Together groups. It's marvelous. Uh, those are starting to take off. So if you're wondering if anyone is like you in your town that's going through these experiences of deconstruction, learning to reconcile science and faith, and questioning what they once believed, go to AskScienceMike.com and click the Together icon, and you can probably find people in your city. If not, send us an email, and we'll try to set up a group in your city. I also want to thank Greg Nordine for producing the show. I think Greg works harder on Ask Science Mike than I do. And I think he's more responsible for how good it sounds than I am. So, Greg, thank you so much for your work. And my dog, Jeb Botterford, my my bro, my friend, my partner in crime, wrote the Ask Science Mike theme song. I love it. I sing it myself. i got to be honest. I really do. Sometimes I sing my own theme song. Maybe I'm a narcissist. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. And I can't wait to talk to you next week.